Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker. I'm your host for today, Andrew Harrison. Tax. It's top of the agenda in the current Tory leadership battle. The overwhelming majority of candidates are promising immediate cuts to income and corporation tax, averaging £46 billion, with only the vaguest idea of how to pay for them. Rishi Sunak's warnings about financial fairy tales are cutting little ice with MPs who've labelled the most Thatcherite MP in the race as a socialist. But amid vague talk of 20% efficiency savings and precious little mention of the pressures on health, education and other priorities that the Office for Budget Responsibility says has put public debt on an unsustainable path, very few are asking the biggest question. Does it make any sense to cut taxes and inject money into the economy during a a once-in-a-generation inflation crisis? Won't you just stoke that inflation further? Luckily, I have Giles Wilkes, former economics special advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable, former FT leader writer and now senior fellow at the Institute for Government, to explain it all to me, a guy with a grade C economics A-level. Hello, Giles. Welcome back to the bunker. It's great to be here in this glorious month, Andrew. It is a glorious. There's too much news. We're all suffering from news poisoning. Too much and too fast. So first, I've got to ask you, just put set this in context. How serious is the tax versus inflation quandary for the next government that we will have in a few weeks? Exactly how bad are the public finances? I mean, we're, we're right at the bleeding edge of that particular dilemma because and it's not necessarily about the public finances in fact there's been this glorious conversion amongst um the so-called thatcherite ministers from thinking that deficits about 10 12 years ago were gonna cart the, the uk off turn us into greece sitting on a tub of nitroglycerine were some of the phrases they used to use now to say actually the deficit is not such a problem you know don't we care about the economy instead and instead the, so they're suggesting tax cuts and raising the deficit on the assumption that this helps the economy. But the reason we're at this dilemma is, as you said, there's way too much spending in the economy. We've got inflation figures of around 9%. Some of it is from energy prices, thanks to our friend Vladimir Putin. But a lot of it is because the, the rate of spending increase in this economy is already so high. And so if we raised it any more, the Bank of England would just have to take measures to cut it. So you'd end up with this ridiculous tug of war between horse guards in Whitehall and Threadneedle Street. And you just end up with pretty much the same position, except higher interest rates and a more uncertain situation. So, no, it's a terrible idea to try and pump money into the economy right now. And I suspect that they are hoping the Tory membership doesn't really think about these things or doesn't have a memory of the <laughs> 70s and 80s. You would have thought if there's one party membership that does remember the 70s and 80s quite clearly, it would be those guys. Everybody else is too young. 
Yeah, I mean, it used to be a regular hobby of theirs to go on about how we don't want to go back to the 70s, and this is a terrible thing. And it was the prime minister in the 70s, a Labour prime minister, Jim Callaghan, who delivered the most famous speech about this, telling people that in all frankness, you cannot spend your way out of a recession. Well, clearly, 45 years later, people are just not paying attention to that anymore, and that's what they want to do. Have we been here before, though, with tax cuts being prescribed as a remedy, not just for a stalling economy, but for inflation too? I and mean, if Jim Callaghan was warning against it, I presume this is this is a recurring trope. Oh, it's a regular feature. I mean, as, as a special advisor in the government for six and a half years, I think I was regularly lobbied for various clever little tax gimmicks that would make a big difference. The whole system is absolutely larded with them. So it's a regular feature of it that the business lobby turns up and to the tune of just one cornetto, they say just one more tax break, <laughs> we'll suddenly all start investing a lot more. And there's all sorts of them. There's a, there's tax breaks for being an investor in small startup companies, which basically go to the very well off. There are tax breaks for hiring your first employee. There are tax breaks for research and development. There's tax breaks designed for almost everything and quite a low level of corporate tax. So it's not the answer, in my view, to why we haven't been investing enough as a country. And it's a constant theme. And as for whether it helps inflation, well, the theory is that you do these tax breaks, business rolls up their sleeves, does a lot of investment, boosts the ability of the economy to deliver stuff, and that lowers inflation. But that's a kind of 20-year timescale. And these guys, these politicians running for the leadership are thinking more about a three-month timescale. What you're talking about there reminds me of, you know, the scene in Father Ted where they're trying to get the milk flow to stop. And one of the priests says, is there anything to be said for saying another mass? Are there targeted tax cuts that do have a, a record of boosting an economy in an, uh, in an inflationary period without stoking that economy further? Or is that just contradiction in terms? Well, in an inflationary period, I mean, look, it, tax does distort the economy. So in other words, if you had absolutely no tax, somehow you could fund the state from other sources of money, like a great big endowment fund, and you had no tax, it would mean everyone has much better incentives to realise the full benefit of their investments and and their labour. So every tax is to a certain degree a bad tax from that point of view. We need them because we need to fund even more important public spending. So every time you do cut tax, if you could say ceteris paribus, keep everything else the same, you ought to have slightly better incentives for the economy to do the right sorts of things, invest, people go into the right jobs, work harder, all the things that we're all in favour of. What's been the best ideas in the past? I mean, People talk very strongly of research and development tax credits as a way of encouraging people to do more R&D, which is important for the economy. That's a valuable one. It's generally a good idea not to have too high a level of corporate tax, but it's not the deciding factor. Otherwise, I mean, it's seldom the top of my actual list, because when I look around at the country, I would say the bigger problem is the gradual erosion of the public sphere and the uncertainty and inconsistency in government policy making is more off-putting to business investment than just a small change in their return of cash. Are we in another era of what used to be called stagflation? Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating time because this was generally regarded as a bogeyman that was being used by people generally on the right to scare people off to expansive policy and it does feel like it's returning. It certainly feels like it's returning in the United States. They're in a situation now where the inflation appears to have gained its own momentum and the central bank is genuinely uncertain as to where it's going to have to put its peak interest rate. We're also at a time where I've only been able to read about, which is when you have no labour available for the stuff you want to do. That takes me back to books I've got here about the 60s economy, where British ministers would genuinely be debating, saying, look, we need slightly higher unemployment. 
it's just too low here. We don't have enough workers. This is why, why they brought in people from the former colonies. We didn't have enough workers. And they, this is the first time this has happened in living memory of policymakers. And that's what produces stagflation when you don't have the supply resources to get everything that you want out of the economy. So, yeah, I think we are in that world. And it means that the um, policymakers are to some extent without a compass. One of the things that even I've noticed is we're told that uh, tax cuts under circumstances like these will be paid out of future economic growth. The tax revenues, although cut now, will produce uh, an economic boom, which overall increases aggregate tax levels, and it's all going to be fine. Isn't that like the old pre-Thatcherite consensus model? And you've got this idea at the moment that the the Tory right is complaining that its candidates are not behaving the way people did before Margaret Thatcher. It just seems bizarre. Yeah, and we've put in place institutional constraints to stop us being able to write fairy tale future growth numbers that enable any your maths to add up. We, I mean, the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the government's watchdog for all this stuff, does already pencil in a decent amount of growth going into the future. It pencils in that we'll be getting per head productivity growth of about one and a half percent a year, which is actually pretty decent compared to the terrible results we've had for the last dozen years. And so... What these candidates are saying is that they're going to achieve even more than that. And given the size of our economy, given how much of it is kind of already set in stone, we've already got, you know, you know, we've got 4.6 trillion of capital in this economy. It doesn't really matter how much extra investment you get. You only move a number like that really slowly. So the idea that they can turn it around and suddenly turn it into Singaporean growth with what a few tax rate changes is really for the birds. It takes a lot to change an economy like that. Even Thatcher spent 10 years messing around with absolutely everything, privatising things, changing the labour laws, cutting tax rates from 80 to 40. All of that stuff might have increased the growth rate by half a percentage points in time for Gordon Brown to enjoy it. That's the sort of timescale you're talking about. So if they're talking about doing amazingly radical things and raising growth, even if they did, they're not going to get the um, returns from it for many, many years. The other weird thing to me is that the, the kind of model of effectively printing the money and financing growth with that it's basically your modern monetary theory kind of groovy modern left stuff, isn't yeah. it? Which raises the question of how modern is modern monetary theory, or is it actually yeah? I old mean, school? I'm sure John Maynard Keynes understood it in the books he wrote before the general theory back in the 20s about money printing and how ultimately it leads to it's related to the price level. To be fair, the hypocrisy lies on both sides there because the modern monetary theorists haven't been going out there saying these are the taxes they would raise or the spending they would cut in order to control inflation, which was precisely the implication of their model. But yeah, that's the limit. I mean, what where it makes everything beautifully clear is when you're in an inflationary period, the limit on what you can do is really clear there. It's in the inflation rate. The inflation rate is telling you that you are trying to get more out of the economy than your economy can produce. It's not about our debt or anything. And it's just a matter of which one of those things you control. Do you control by raising interest rates and cutting spending in the economy, or do you control it through the fiscal means? But ultimately, we're being said, you're trying to do too much, and you need to, in some sense, show constraints and have honest conversations with the public, which we're just not seeing in this leadership race, apart from from Rishi Sunak, to be fair. Is there a case for, if you have a Sunak mindset, just gritting your teeth and letting inflation rumble on for a while to kind of eat away at the public debt, which you're very supposedly concerned about? Wow, it's really tempting. I mean, a few caveats to that. One, um, a lot of the public debt is now inflation linked. So you find that almost immediately the amount that the Treasury has to pay out to those index linked guilt holders goes up. And also quite a lot of um, Treasury liabilities are a sort of index linked, like you've got to pay pensions and they go up. 
So, yes, normally the Treasury benefits from surprise inflation, but maybe not as much as you'd hope. But the other really important point, inflation is incredibly unpopular. It's more unpopular than unemployment by quite a long way. Everyone feels it. It hits a lot of really vulnerable people. And it's very unfair. Some people like you know, bankers in the city who've got strong bargaining power, people who can really fight for a wage rise, they, they kind of get away with it. People who own a house, the house will eventually go up with inflation. But a lot of people don't. And so it's incredibly unpopular. There's no way of making a society unpopular so quickly as lots of inflation. So Rishi Sunak, I, mean, I, I doubt he's very tempted by it. What would a real out and proud Thatcherite be doing, not someone who's trying to pretend they're part of uh, some uh, nebulous version of modern conservatism. A lot of them are trying to do what uh, Margaret Thatcher was doing, which was pretending Labour's been in power. (laughs) This is an absolute shower I'm taking over here, and it's about time somebody came in, and and somebody needs to tell them a little about the last 12 years. They need that break. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was able to come in after a long period, including under her predecessor as Tory leader, Edward Heath, where the country seemed to be losing the ability to manage itself. And it was, the country was ready for the message that enough is enough. We need to take some pain. We being, uh, I've put absolutely massive air quotes around that. Because yes, it was we meaning dead. you. <laughs> we being you people largely in the north <laughs> and um, the manufacturing sector, which collapsed 15% in one year. That kind of honest statement saying, look, we are in an unsustainable position. We need to do something about this and it's going to be painful. That was the Thatcher recipe and it almost pitched her out after one term. If it wasn't for the Falklands War, it might not have worked. But it's now a big part of the conservative mythology that that famous moment when she said the lady's not for turning and the 365 economists all told her she was wrong and two of them said she was right and the economy started growing anyway. That's such an important part of Tory mythology, but it does mean starting with doing tough and difficult and unpopular things and barreling on regardless. And it doesn't look like this lot are remotely tempted by that. What would a completely objective, reason-driven economist like you, for instance, do oh. under these circumstances? If it, you know, suddenly you find yourself teleported into number 11. Well, I mean, it depends on how unconstrained you think I might be, Andrew. I mean, if, if the job is to leave the economy 10 years later, can you imagine how great I would be after 10 years in number 11, <laughs> um, with a higher growth rate? There's a number of things you can do. One of them is actually stopping doing stupid things. So you would try to establish better relations with Europe so business isn't constantly worried about that friction. You would try to effectively generate a softer Brexit from the harder Brexit, in my view. I think that would take a couple of percentage points of the GDP loss we're suffering back. I think you would you try to establish a proper industrial strategy where important industries that you identify know that they've got a stable institutional framework and funding for five or 10 years. So it's not going to be changing every time you change the business minister. You try to make sure that the Treasury and the business department get on better. I mean, I do think you'd need an honest discussion with the public about how taxes are going to need to remain quite high. And you try to set them on a longer term timescale, like social care. It can be funded with, I don't know, 15, 20 billion pounds. They just need to have a conversation that says we're going to fund it in this way and we're all in it. So we need just a more grown up and long term conversation about a lot of these things. And not pretending that just a few abrupt and dramatic movements in two or three areas can just suddenly turn our growth around. But even if you did all of that right, it's still going to be quite difficult. You're still going to have maybe growth coming to slightly less than what Blair and Brown enjoyed for 10 years. And that will still force quite tough choices as we get older as an economy. So even if you did it all correctly, I think you'd still have a tough time. 
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So let's talk about that tax burden itself. It's about 33.1% of GDP uh, in 2021. It's predicted to reach 363 by 2026. That would be the highest since Atlee, which we keep getting told about. Tell me what's driving this increase in the tax burden then. Well, well, over the very long term, I think back in the early 80s, the NHS was maybe three and a half, four percent of GDP. And now it's going to be eight, rising to nine, ten. Um, the education budget is likewise likely to have grown more. At the same time, defence has come down, but other sort of age related budgets are likely to have risen too. But in general, there's a rule that public spending tends to rise in line with the size of the economy, regardless. Or, and I think it might be Wagner's rule. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And it's partly explained by the fact that public services being delivered by human beings, not factories, don't grow in productivity like the rest of the economy. So they gradually take up more of the economy anyway. So it's an inevitable rule that it's very, very hard to keep public spending down through time. I mean, I think the biggest driver is likely to be the NHS budget, which I think will by the middle of the century, be closing in on half of our our departmental spending. But even at 36% of GDP, we'd still be kind of in the mid-range of comparable countries. We'd be below France, Germany, Italy, Sweden. The EU 14 average is 39%. So, you know, what are we moaning about? Yeah, I agree. Although, you know, I mean, there's the point about you don't want to have... um, We've been trying to have European levels of public services with American levels of taxation, and we seem to have got it the other way around. The public needs to trust us that if we do raise more revenues like this, that we're going to spend them extremely efficiently and provide the public services that they need and deserve. And I guess by trying to cheese bear our way to it, we haven't been able to demonstrate that we're keeping up our side of the bargain. But yeah, the absolute, that number that you're quoting isn't the number that businesses or individuals look at and go, shall I work today or shall I start a new business? I mean, all sorts of extraordinary businesses started in the United States when the tax rates were way, way higher. I mean, Microsoft and Apple, for example, all sorts of fantastic innovations happened in the US economy post-war when the state took way more of the tax burden. So I think there's too much of an obsession with that particular number is the explanation for whether we're entrepreneurial or statist. It matters far more whether your tax system is cleverly designed and doesn't sort of tax the wrong things. We could, for example, tax more of the bad things, and that would actually improve the economy, you know, taxing more carbon, for example, and therefore shifting us towards a low carbon economy. So it's um, I don't think that number itself is an explanation for whether we're, we're doing well or badly as a country tax-wise. It's about how you go about it. Um, Do we have any idea yet about any detail from any of the remaining candidates in the prime ministerial race? Because they're all they're all just saying tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. There is a you know Zahawi wanted to take corporation tax down to fifteen percent. He's now out of the race. Is there any more detail that has caught your eye? Well, detail. 
hollow laugh at this point. <laughs> I think some of them are just producing an aspiration, which in a sense is the more honest thing. They say, look, I'm one of those people who believes in this stuff. Trust me. Because to set out detailed figures where you haven't gotten into the Treasury and you haven't seen how we're coming out of this Ukraine crisis and inflationary, inflationary problem is maybe just too precise. And after all, they have like two or three sweating researchers aged about 23 with a spreadsheet. So if they said, and as a result, I've worked out where to put all of our marginal rates, you really should cock an eyebrow at them. So I think Rishi Sunak is obviously the one with the most detailed plan because he's been in the Treasury. And what he's done is promised to raise corporation tax at significant political risk to himself, but also looking into changing what's called the capital allowances regime that gives businesses incentives to invest more. So his plan is to shift the regime towards a more pro-investment tilt. That's the one I know about. What Liz Truss is planning, I really don't know. And Penny Morden, I know almost nothing about, like most of the public. Well, you're going to have to get used to it because she's going to be the prime minister, probably. Yes, I I follow the bookies odds too. And she's what, 65% likely now. Wow, what a week. As you've said, the real crisis is, is actually cost of living, of which taxation is a big part, but it's only a part. It's been completely overshadowed by the tax question. It's a crisis of wages and benefits, not tax. And benefits are not going to be going up under any of these candidates. What levers are left then to try to you know, manage an inflationary environment while supposedly introducing some of these tax cuts? You've already taken away the only one that would exist. If this inflationary shock is characterised as the UK is poorer than it thought it was, and it's a matter of dividing out the pain, I mean, the fiscal system is the only way of determining a fairer apportionment of the blame. And so normally you would do, if you said, look, it's just not right for the very poorest to take this hardest, they're the people closest to the margins. The benefit system would be the best way of doing it. You can mess around with energy bills by taking this or that slice off them. But actually, that's not it's not necessarily the best policy, in part because when energy prices are high, you don't want to shield people directly from them because you want them to keep the incentive to cut their energy usage. So it's better to give them cash to get by and be able to afford to live than necessarily cut their energy bills. What other measures are there to make people feel better? I mean, it's only redistribution, basically. I mean, in a sense, the smart thing to do if you're purely thinking about sort of fairness probably is to try to tax capital more highly and give it to labour because capital can afford it it sort of spreads it amongst the people who are naturally wealthier and labour is the other people who need it because that's families but you know there isn't an easy way if we've genuinely become poor if we're suffering a productivity crisis and an energy crisis and we're having to send more money indirectly over to Russia for its gas then there's no easy answer there's simply the state coming in to protect people which is its job. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Finally, just to wrap this up, it's highly likely that by the time this tax burden peaks in 2026 and all this stuff has gone through the system, there will be a different, almost certainly, Labour government. Do we have any idea of Labour's tax versus inflation policy yet, or are they just sitting there with popcorn watching their enemies make mistakes? I think popcorn is a good investment right now. Labour have been scared for a long while that they have the charge of irresponsibly 
ability thrown at them. And they must be hardly believing their luck right now to see the Tories open up such a wide goal for irresponsibility, so much so that Labour could arguably say, look, we're the sound money party and we're also more compassionate, simply by not announcing these sort of heedless tax cuts. I don't know more specifically than that. They led the way thinking about windfall taxes, which kind of have the logic I was just referring to, of taking it from some of the winners of this energy crisis and giving it to some of the people losing out. But um, they were then totally outflanked by Rishi Sunak announcing an even bigger one. Otherwise, I think they're probably hoping to get the same kind of kudos they got back in the 90s when they came in and they were more sound than people expected. Nobody, there was no worry about a socialist government coming in. And they sort of gained the approval of the corporate sector enough that they could then do quite pro-social things with their other hand. So, But otherwise, I'm afraid I don't really know. I don't think they're abandoning the inflation targeting framework. I don't think they're abandoning the idea that you need fiscal rules. And I think they think that's really enough. And that probably is enough. Well, there's a distinct possibility of a socialist government coming in uh, when the Sunak wins. That's uh, the socialist chancellor oh, yeah. will be notorious leading it. Socialist. Notorious socialist. That brings us to the end of this edition of The Bunker, but not the tax debate. Thank you, Giles, for explaining it all to me. That was brilliant. It's been a pleasure. We're going to be following all this in the ongoing Bunker podcast. And remember, you can do your bit for British business by supporting us on Patreon. You'll be helping us to keep going and to employ more talented young producers and editors who will then pay tax and cover the cost of your social care in old age. It's a win-win. Search Patreon Bunker podcast to find out more. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>